Chapter Forty Six of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Forty Six. The director Kendrick was in a desperate frenzy to complete the picture. The hard times were reducing the incomes of the producers and exhibitors at a terrifying rate. The apathy that accompanies all financial depressions sickened the public appetite for everything. The critics were saying that the emptiness of the theaters was due to the stupidity of the plays, but just as stupid plays had prospered mightily when the boom was at its height. The critics were likewise saying that the moving pictures were unworthy of the patronage they were not getting. But the fault was with the public dyspepsia and not with the cooks. In any case, the vast cinematic industry was in as serious a plight as the steel, the copper, the lumber, and all the other giant industries. In spite of the ferocious slashes in salaries, wages, sets, most of the studios were declaring holidays of a month or more. The orders had gone forth to rush the Holby picture to a conclusion. The big night storm scenes had been scheduled for the final takes. They would appear early in the story, but too many accidents might happen if they were shot in sequence. It would be lamentable if any of the actors were injured at any time, but it would be disastrous to have an arm or a head broken or a case of pneumonia in the middle of the work. It had happened. Actors occasionally died with extravagant inopportunity, or broke bones, or marred countenances that could not be matched or replaced. The expense of some of these mishaps was appalling, with an overhead of $2,000 a day. On the final morning, the first scenes were begun promptly at nine. Kendrick promised to let the company go at three to rest for the all-night grind, but delays of every sort occurred. A light would flicker during an important scene. In a close-up, one of the characters would swerve outside the narrow space allotted. When the actors were again attuned, and the director was impatient to cry camera, one of the cameramen would find that he had not film enough, and a new magazine must be fetched. Such inevitable, incessant delays were peculiarly irritating to a company on the razor edge of emotion, but there was rarely an outburst. Emotion, being property, was conserved. There is probably no class of people who act so rarely as actors. The general opinion to the contrary is, like most general opinions, based on ignorance. At three o'clock there were still many scenes unshot. The work continued, and it was not until half-past seven that the day's work was done. The rushes of the day before were still to be inspected in the projection room, whither the company scampered. It was eight o'clock before anyone could stop for dinner. The actors were not considered, but the work crews had to be humored. Some of them were members of unions, and it was a legal peril also to keep extra people at work more than eight hours in a day. Tom Holby and Mem sought their dinner in a little shack near the studio. They perched on stools and ate T-bone steaks, fried potatoes, doughnuts, and coffee with the voracity of longshoremen. At nine, they went to the first of the sets. The Californian night was black and bitter cold. The night in the story was one of tempest and battle. Tom Holby must run an automobile into a ditch and make a desperate war against four brutes who were instructed to put up a good fight. The public would not stand a mock engagement. Fists had to land, heads had to rock, and when a man fell, he must fall. He must go over with a crash wherever the blow sent him. 
the actors wanted it so tom holby expected to end the night bleeding bruised tattered and mud-smeared he had cracked many a bone and lost a tooth or two on such gala occasions and once he had splittered the bones of his right hand when his fist missed the face it was aimed at and struck the stone beneath it mem's share in the hurricane was to run through the wildest of the storm and bring rescue such scenes in the movies are often railed at as cheap sensationalism yet they are heroic art in an epic poem or a classic drama they are accounted the height of achievement winslow homer's high seas conrad's gorgeous simoons are lauded as triumphs of genius the author rifles the dictionary and guts his thesaurus the painter wrecks his palette and his brushes and is celebrated as of the grand school when the moving picture geniuses likewise exhaust a vocabulary of mechanical effects and spread before the world visions of beautiful drama the critics pass by with averted gaze mem had five scenes to dash through her pilgrimage was to be a sort of pippa passes but she was not to go singing she was to be stormed upon as sebald and ottima were each bit of scenery through which she was to flash had been made ready the day before three long perforated rain-pipes were erected on scaffolds and connected with the stand-pipes and they were reinforced by men who would play a fire-hose or two upon the hapless actress the gale was to be provided by an airplane engine and propeller mounted on a truck mem suffering the chill of the night especially because of fatigue and excitement inspected the setting she was so briefly to adorn why did they build that fence around the wind machine she asked kendrick to keep people from walking into the propeller and getting chopped to mincemeat said kendrick my assistant was engaged on three pictures where airplane propellers were used and a man was killed in each one of them in one of them an airship caught fire and fell during a night picture he was the first man to reach the aviator he picked up the poor fellow's hot hand and his arm came off it was charred like excuse me mem gasped and retreated from the rest of it and she kept as far as possible from the giant fan the propeller made a deafening uproar when it was set in motion and it churned the air into a small vertical cyclone caught in the first gust of it mem was driven like an autumn leaf with skirts whipping away from her in her first scene she was to dash from a house and down its steps first the men with the fire hose soaked the shell of the house the porch and the steps and the ground about them till they were all flooded then the rain machine was tested and sent its three showers from overhead the wind machine was set in motion and the air was filled with sheets of driven rain the lightning machine added the thunder of its leaping sparks to the turmoil kendrick in thigh boots and a trench coat he had worn in france went to the porch to test the storm in his hand he carried an electric button with a cable to the lightning machine this rang a bell for the man in charge of it the noisy wind machine was controlled by wigwag signals with his hand the director was a god in little he could bid the rain rain the wind roar and the lightning blaze he rode upon the storm he created at first the storm was too mild for his taste at his command it was aggravated until he could not stand up before it gradually he achieved the exact magnitude of violence and the men in control of the forces of imitated nature understood that thus far they must go and no farther under a vast umbrella and behind shields of black flats called niggers the battery of cameramen stood arranging focuses and lights 
Two of them used lenses that would make close-ups, while the others caught the long shots, for there would be no chance of taking special close-ups. After an hour or more of harrowing delay, the army was ready for the battle. Mem climbed up the scaffolding back of the palatial front door and porch. The assistant director explained the signal he was to relay from the director, and the storm was ordered to begin. A gentle rain fell from the pipes. The fire hose, aimed up in the air, added its volume. The wind machine set up its mad clatter. The rain became a deluge of flying water, and the lightning filled it with shattering fire. Then Mem was called forth. She clutched her cloak about her and thrust into the tempest. It was like driving through a slightly rarefied cataract. She hardly reached the pillar at the edge of the porch, clutched it for a moment, caught a quick breath, and flung down the steps. And that was that, all this preparation for one minute of action, save for a brief return to the porch to pose for still photographs. She was dripping and so lost that she ran into one of the property men who checked her. Kendrick came to her, gave her an accolade of approval. He patted her sopping shoulder and said, Fine, but in the next scene, hold your cloak about you a little tighter. The wind was so stormy and your clothes so wet that there wasn't much of you left to the imagination. In some of the states, the censors may cut the whole scene out, but we won't retake it. When two days later, Mem saw the rushes in the projection room, she could hardly believe that the storm was a matter of such clumsy artifice. The reality of it fairly terrified her. The rain-swept porch and the fury of lightnings about the pillars gave no hint of human devising. She felt a surge of pity at the bravery of the little figure she made plunging into the rack on her errand of rescue. The gale flung her cloak and her skirts about her in fleeting sculptures of Grecian beauty. But when she paused at the edge of the steps and staggered under the buffets of the wind, she was aghast to see herself modeled in the least detail like the clay of a statue, all the more nude for the emphasis of a few wrinkles in a framing drapery. She felt her first sympathy for Miss Bevan's prudery and blushed in the dark projection room. She did not at all approve the groan of the director. Wonderful! It's like an ivory statue on an ebony background. To think that the dirty-minded censors will call it indecent, the blackguards. Mem hoped that the company's own censors would excise it before the outside world saw it. But she said nothing. She belonged to her art, body, as well as soul. But this revelation was for a later day. For the present, the director's caution to keep her cloak about her was alarming enough. She was taken to a warm room and wrapped in blankets while the next scene was prepared. This was a matter of another hour's delay. Rain pipes had already been erected but the lights had to be trundled into place, the cameras placed and protected, and a hundred details made ready before she was called out again. Holby and Kendrick were solicitous for her, and asked if she was chilled. She laughed. The adventure kindled her youthful arteries. It was not so pleasant to stand still and have the fire hose lifted above her. She was supposed to have run a long distance between the porch steps and this scene, and she must enter it wet. She had a bit of a chill in this shower bath, and there was a hitch in starting, but at length she got her signal and went forward again, head down, into the wild storm. The propeller ran too fast, and she could not proceed. She clung to a wall and tugged in vain. The blast carried her cloak entirely away, and she had no protection from the ruthless scrutiny of the lightning or the unedited records of the cameras. The noise was so appalling that the director ripped his throat in vain. 
He had to run to the wind machine and check it. The picture had to be taken over. Mem's cloak was recovered and the mud washed from it. Then it was laid clammily about her icy shoulders, and she made another try. This time the result was better, and she returned to the room and her blankets for another hour. She could not seem to get warm. Her bones were like pipes in which the marrow froze. When she went out again, Kendrick asked her how she was. Her teeth chattered together as she said, All right. He looked at her with sympathy and admiration, and he decided to cut out one of the most promising scenes, lest it overtax her strength. During her absence, a telephone pole and a tree had been brought down by the storm and photographed as they fell. It was her business now to clamber across the pole and push through the branches of the tree, and so fight her way out of the picture. The rain pipes had been brought forward and set up in a new position. The cameras were aligned. Next them stood a truck containing a great sun arc. Next that was the lightning machine, abreast of it the wind machine. In the preliminary tests it had been hard to find the right angle for the gale to blow from, and the wind machine had been shifted several times. The wind man, in his confusion, forgot to notice that the property man had forgotten, in their confusion, to set up the fence before the propeller. It was after midnight now, and everybody was numb with cold, drenched with the promiscuous rain, and a little irresponsible. Their working day was already fifteen hours old, and it would last at least five hours more. The spectators who had gathered to watch the first scenes had been driven from the lot by the cold their thick cloaks and overcoats could not overcome. Tom Holby had been photographed in a climb up the wet sides of a ravine and was half frozen in his soaked clothes, but he stayed to watch Mem through this scene. He was palsied in the bundled wraps about him, and his heart ached as he saw Mem in her little wet dress throw off her blankets, put on the dreadful mantle of the wet cape, and go out into the distant dark beyond the range of the cameras. The storm broke out anew at the director's signal. The wind bellowed and slashed the branches of the prostrate tree. The lightning snapped and flared, and its flare winnowed the rain in flaming wraiths. Then, from the dark, the little sorrowful figure of Remember Steddon appeared, a ghost materializing from the night. She struggled with the maniac hurricane, stumbled and fell across the telephone pole, thrust aside the wires, lifted herself and breasted the wind again, drove into the wreck of the fallen tree. The branches whipped her wet flesh cruelly. The lightning just ahead of her blistered her vision like the white-hot irons driven into the eyes of Shakespeare's Prince Clarence. The wind blew her breath back into her lungs. If she had not gained a little support from one stout bough of the tree, she could never have reached the margin of the picture. Kendrick's heart was glad with triumph as he saw her pass out of the camera range. He called, Cut! and the cameramen were jubilant as each of them shouted, "'Okay for me!' Then Kendrick heard screams of terror, wild howls of fear. He ran forward and saw the blinded little figure of Mem still pressing on straight into the blur of the airplane propeller. His heart sickened. She would be sliced to shreds. She could not hear the yelled warnings in the noise of the machine. End of chapter 46 Recording by Deanna Beauvais